If you're ready to unlock your potential to transform the world around you, then join us here on the Love and Leadership Podcast as we dive into the art of leadership, exploring cutting-edge strategies and timeless wisdom, empowering you to become the exceptional leader you were born to be. You'll learn from inspiring interviews with visionaries, changemakers, and thought leaders who give us practical and actionable real-life leadership strategies, and we'll celebrate authenticity and empathy because leadership is about connecting with others on a profound level. So if you're ready to transform your leadership journey, don't miss a single episode of the Love and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe today for access to a wealth of wisdom, inspiration, and actionable strategies. Let's redefine leadership and create a world where every leader leads with love, passion, and purpose. Welcome to the Love and Leadership Podcast, where we bring you interviews with extraordinary leaders who are changing the world. I'm Dr. Beth Merkel, your Love and Leadership Podcast host. And with us on this episode is psychiatrist and author, Dr. Larry Widman. And Dr. Widman is a high-performance mindset coach. He's better known as Doc by professional athletes, Olympians, and elite-level college and high school athletes he's worked with for more than 20 years. He works with several NCAA, NAIA, and top high school programs across the U.S. and has coached teams to six Division I national championships, dozens of state championships, and has helped hundreds of teams max out when it mattered most. Well, thank you for joining me on the Love and Leadership podcast, Dr. Widman. Uh, may I call you Doc? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It's such a pleasure. Just to give our viewing audience some context, uh, Doc and I met at a mindfulness retreat uh, uh, just a few weeks back, and your presentation was so amazing. It was so uh, so engaging, and your examples that you gave of solid leadership and, and the difference that high-quality leadership can make just excited me so much. I was that person sitting <laughs> in the front row, you know, doing my horse shack routine. You know, <laughs> For those of you of a certain age, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of you can go ahead and look that up online. But let's give some context here. And will you tell us what exactly are you talking about when you talk about the max out mindset? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we kind of came up with that term max out mindset because we wanted to have a way to formulate for others who are trying to grow either individually or collectively and whether it be on mindset or leadership, a framework on how you get there. Because we're very good in this world at defining how do you improve if you want to jump higher or mm-hmm. get stronger or maybe get an A in a class for the first time. Yeah. But we haven't been great explaining to others, especially high performers, what I call them, whether it's athletes or anyone that that is trying to be great at their craft, how do you train your mind? What does it mean to train mindset? You know, why do we train it? And then what do we train and how do we train it? And that's really the key is to have a framework of understanding why is it important to train your mind? And then of course, you got to be able to tell people what you train. And then you also have to be able to tell them how to train it. And if you can put the why, what, and how together, Now people have the confidence to say, you know what, I can do that. I'm usually a nervous person or I'm low in confidence. I thought that's who I always was. But now I see you can train those skills just like any physical skill. That is key because that's where the growth comes from, right? We get so much 
of um, be better, do better, grow, change, develop, and then no guidance. But your program and your programs outlined in this book, Max Out Mindset, the 15 powers um, of the Max Out Mindset and maxing out your mindset when it matters most. So you really go into those specifics that you're talking about. You know, there are 15 powers. I love it. Thank you. I'm the person who needs the checklist, <laughs> needs to know if I'm doing it and doing it well. So what, without going into all 15 powers, we'll list those in the show notes and buy the book <laughs> if you really want to know. Where do we start? Where do we start to develop a maxed out mindset? Yeah, I know it sounds strange, but you start at the beginning. And you start by, the way I organize things is, is preparing your mind for battle. And so then my book is really in three sections. It's sort of the max out your mind, max out your emotions, and max out your team if you're on a team. And I really say two or more people that's a team. Yeah. So a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be this big numbers, but two people, a marriage, that's a team. And so for most people, it applies. If you're the head of your family, well, you're the head of that family system. That's a team. And so to be able to understand the foundations is really important. And that's where I have in the max out your mind part. And in my introductions where I talk about some really key concepts like um, the power of the space, the power of positive psychology, and the power of of uh, the, the four legs of an elite mindset. And that's, that's the foundation. So just one of them, for example, if you said, what's the power of the space? Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. What are we talking about? Yeah, so Viktor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist years yes. ago. I think I know you were familiar with him. And <laughs> he happened to be Jewish. He was placed in a concentration camp with all of his family, including his wife, and everyone was killed except for him. He wrote a really cool book called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. But another thing that he really came up with, one of his quotes was not from that book. And he said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Mm. In that space is the power to choose your response. And so the power of the space, when you think about it, a stimulus is a trigger. It's an event. It's usually one that often causes you to be frustrated or angry. Um, and I truly believe that we can train our brains to have an extra couple seconds to decide how I'm gonna respond in a situation. So at first I say everyone needs to know their triggers. We all have different ones, yeah, right? True. In the animal world, I start off by telling people when an animal has triggered with a stimulus, they usually either do this or this. I say it's fight or flight. Because animals don't have a great front part of their brain. So they either have to run to the fight or they run away. They don't have time to think or reason. Human beings have a much better part of their front brain. So they have time to think or reason out most of the time. But I always like to joke, but I'm also serious that anyone who has any form of road rage or knows somebody who does, yeah. that stimulus of not handling traffic very well leads to a response that's not very healthy sometimes. Right. Right. Or maybe it's a conversation that you're triggered by either on social media or with a friend. And then I always say you have this choice. You can either add fuel to the fire or you can diffuse it. And using mental skills that we train with deep breathing and self-talk. You know, you have this opportunity in traffic or if someone says something hurtful to you, all right, I know exactly what to say to make them feel really small right now. But <laughs> did I make it worse or did I go, you know what, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to come back and talk to my mom or my significant other or my coach or my teacher when I'm calm. 
and I have a chance to think about how I want to respond. So that's the power of the space is human beings have the capacity to think about and choose their response. And how we choose it has a lot to do with how healthy we are. And that fight or flight's always kicking off in human beings. It could be in traffic, it could be a social media post, you know, it could be a text you got, it could be a conversation you're having. Mm. And then that fight or flight system kicks off, you're not really in danger, but all those symptoms of getting uptight and anxious and your heart racing and your blood pressure boiling, if that's going off all day long and you don't know how to manage that, we call that the mind-body stress reaction. And now human beings get sick. When you get to my age or younger even, yeah. you know, migraines, ulcers, high mm -hmm. blood pressure. But yeah. you, ha you have to learn to manage your space if you want to be healthy in life. And of course, I work with a lot of high performers. And so same thing. How do you respond to a mistake in a game or when there's a bad yeah. call? How you choose to respond has a big impact on how much the next moment's gonna be positive or negative for you. I made a mistake, ref made a bad call. Do I lose my mind or do I get calm and get refocused for the next play? And that's the power of the space and that's just one example of the 15 powers that we talk about that help a person understand what is it that you can do in your brain that's gonna be really important to be healthy in sport and life. And I say life first actually. And then, and then we get into the powers that help you train your mind individually and collectively and then your team. Mm -hmm. Now, th this is uh, information that I uh, give to my students. I direct a Master of Science in Organizational Leadership program. So my students are high performers. And they're also very um, achievement-oriented. And I know that when we feel that way, and, and so many of us do, especially as we're moving into leadership positions or we have greater responsibility that, that is uh, associated with leadership, we really feel that need to deliver. But it's hard to get out of that habit of reaction, right? The road rage. Um, somebody cuts me off and, and I'm cussing and it feels good in the moment. A certain person, certain type of person walks into a room and I have a gut reaction. Um, certain, oh, you know, whatever the triggers are. Mm -hmm. and, and we have so many of them. And you say that being aware of the triggers, first of all, and then knowing how they affect us, how they manifest in our bodies and in our brains can give us that space that when we're kind of looking at it with um, some objectivity, right? And then we can say, oh, yeah, I, I am feeling that anxiety coming up. Or, yeah, this yelling and screaming does feel good, but it's not serving me. We can make that choice. Um, I think that's critical. And it's part of my curriculum. I think it surprises students at first. But that's because, uh, you know, mindfulness has been such an important part of my life, my development, my leadership journey. And I think it is for them as well. They're going into organizational leadership, but you know you find the same thing in the sports arena, and so I think there's a universal application here uh, across so many different fields. All that is well and good. How do we start? How do we start creating that space? What do we do? 
Mm-hmm. Well, what is, you said it first, you have to learn awareness. And that's part of what mindfulness is. When we talk mindfulness, we talk awareness of what my mind is thinking and my body is feeling first. You have to get really good at being aware that I'm starting to get triggered or my self-talk is really bad right now, or I'm really nervous. And if I don't do something, I'm getting ready to give a speech or a presentation to my boss or to my professor and my heart's starting to pound. And then if I don't have some strategy to calm down a little bit, maybe I don't function as well in that presentation. So I say awareness first and then strategy. I say it's too late if you're done with the presentation or like in volleyball, if you serve a ball 20 feet long to go, oh my gosh, I must have been so hyped up. I can't believe I hit that ball that long or I can't believe I couldn't remember. I practiced this speech 100 times and my mind went blank. But you've got to have awareness of where you function at your best. And then when you're off a little bit, as you will be in high pressure situations, oh, I know how to take a few deep tactical breaths. I know how to self-talk this. I know how to maybe visualize or um, imagine doing a great job first. There are mental skills that we can train like any physical skill. And part of what that does is that does give you an extra second or two to decide how I respond to the situation or just get myself calmer so that I can execute what I've trained. You know, whether I've practiced 100 hours on a speech or 100 hours to hit a baseball, but when the pressure hits, can I let my mind and body be in sync so that I, my training can take over? That's where we have to be great, whether we're a surgeon, a teacher, an athlete, any high performers, you have to be able to perform when it matters or when, when the pressure hits or when things aren't going as well as you hope they would. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the difference between um, uh, habituated reaction, you know, something triggers me, I'm going to freak out or I'm going to repress it and implode, which I'm really good at, um, or a uh, skillful response. And if I'm in leadership and I take that second, whether it's you know on a academic team, a sports team, a corporate team, it doesn't matter. If mm-hmm. I'm in a leadership position, it's imperative that I learn to respond rather than react because the decisions we make in that moment affect ourselves, certainly, but everyone around us. And we don't know the ripples that they're going to have. So we've got to be able to respond uh, to the best of our ability in that moment, for sure, Mm -hmm. but to the best of our ability. And remember, that response is primal. That fight or fight is there Uh, to keep us to survive. Yeah. But sometimes it kicks off when we're triggered by whatever our triggers are, but we don't really need that full response. Yeah. But our body does it. But if we can train that response and Mm -hmm. it doesn't kick off quite as strongly, it's another thing that mindfulness and meditation does, is it makes that response not so big. It doesn't mean you'll always just smile in traffic if someone cuts you off, but that initial (laughs) surge of that fight or flight that gets you wound up and angry, it's not as intense and it gives you a chance to think, is it worth getting that mad right now? Mm. Right? Because at the end of the day, as you pointed out in leadership, you know, part of my positive psychology, that power is modeling behaviors. You need to model the behaviors you want for those you lead. And if you freak out under pressure or you scream and yell at somebody on your senior management team in front of the team, and then you expect your team to communicate in a positive manner, that makes no sense. You got to show them you have to model the behaviors you want for those you lead. So you've got yeah. to be, as a leader, you really have to be in control and aware of your emotions so that you don't blow it. You can, one, 10 seconds of bad behavior or reactions can destroy trust to those you're leading. Wow. 
we're getting into so mm -hmm. many areas. And, and we've all had that boss who was reactionary, who it, whatever the topic would just explode. Uh, I, I worked in retail 100 mm. years ago, and I had a boss who actually gathered all of us together in a room and you know, just started screaming and said, you people are so stupid. And I was like, I, I was flabbergasted. I mean, how do you treat somebody that way? Uh, within a week, I was gone. Um, and I've also had the boss who, as, as we all have, who said, wow, um, you know, this, this was not our best moment. Now, how do we move forward? How do, how do we, as a team, make it better? Um, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And the power that has to build esteem, to build confidence, to build trust, all of these things that are so important to team group cohesion so that we can perform at our best. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really comes down to when you, once you form a team, there are common ingredients that elite teams in business or sport do better than others. Yeah. And some of that starts with leadership and then some of it, it's the team dynamics, but without the leadership at the top, because I always say it starts at the top and it's almost impossible to create a great team Sometimes a team will overcome a bad coach despite them, but it's really, <laughs> really hard, especially under pressure yeah. because you're looking for a lot of things and you're looking for what I call a healthy mixture of love and accountability, right? That first boss, only accountability, no love. You're gone in a week. You're mm -hmm. made to feel terrible. There's no psychological safety, which is a whole other topic, but if there's, you don't feel safe in that arena. You don't feel valued. You're gone. You say, I lasted a week. Or you could have the boss who's only about love. And when there are problems, they don't hold anybody accountable Ooh. or maybe that top star on the team, or maybe the top person who does maybe the most sales commissions, but they have a lot of bad behaviors. They don't treat people well on the team and the boss looks the other way that creates a team that breaks apart pretty quickly as well. So you've got to find a balance between love and accountability. You need them both. It's never been harder today for people at the top, whether you're a, a manager or a CEO or a coach, to find that mixture of what works to create an elite team. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you would bring up that, that leading with love is not easy. And I say that all the time. Leading with love is not for the faint of heart. It's about um, communicating in difficult, uh, difficult messages, in difficult moments. It's about setting boundaries. It's about... Uh, re rewarding people uh, appropriately, you know, but you have to get to know your people. It's, it's a lot of work. When I named this podcast, I was a, you know, a, somewhat hesitant for, for a second or two, wondering if people would misinterpret Levin as squishy. Mm -hmm. And that's not it. Mm -hmm. That's not it. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of discipline um, and um, awareness at first, it's a lot of work, but the payoffs are phenomenal. So talk to us a little bit about, like, what are some of the payoffs you see? And, and can you give us some examples of uh, the responses that you've seen in your work to this leading with love, this mm -hmm. type of uh, mindset 
that maxes out performance. Mm -hmm. Well, what is my last power in the book is called mm. the power of ultimate trust. And it is next level trust. It was actually a phrase that I coined, um, got coach John Cook at Nebraska to buy into. And then we got his team that won the national championship in 2015 to use that as their mantra, but they had to define it. They had to define what ultimate trust looked like to them because they didn't want it to be what I thought it meant. Uh -huh. But to me, next level trust is coaches and coaches have trust. Coaches and athletes, athletes and support staff, coaches and support staff. Everybody that's involved in your team has created trust. It's very hard to do. There's no way to get there without building relationships and learning how to be vulnerable. But if you can get to ultimate trust, you have a huge competitive advantage on your team whatever endeavor you do. And saw how it played out a little bit for the Nebraska team to get to ultimate trust. And it led to my, and I wrote in my book, my favorite quote I've ever had a coach ever say in my book from coach John Cook. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years ago at a talk with me, he said, I wish I had learned to coach out of love rather than anger earlier in my career. Oh my I wish gosh. I had learned how to coach out of love rather than anger earlier in my career. Coach was a master at the game planning and the, and the, and the, and the technical training and everything, but he didn't always build the connections. I have an entire chapter called the power of evolution, just about his growth. But he, when he learned to, um, build those connections and build those relationships, the team started to trust him more. And we got to what we call ultimate trust. Now he still has a picture up on a wall of a dog leading a blind dog by a leash as his form of ultimate trust. The trust wow. that a blind dog would have to have in another dog. All the athletes had different pictures and maybe surgeons or people parachuting together or what it looked like to have ultimate trust. And, um, but in order for that to play out on his team, we had to get him to see that he was the leader on that team. And I always ask leaders, what's your contribution to the problem? That's kind of my message. What's your contribution? So if your Ooh. team is playing in fear, if your team isn't communicating well, whatever is going on with your team, I always ask the leader, well, what's your contribution? So in this example, he, he said to me, my, before the year we won it all, he said in the spring, how do I get my team to play with no fear at the end of a game? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the last year felt like we got really tight and played pretty fearful in the Elite Eight. I said, okay, what do you think? I asked him. He gave me several reasons I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. And then I said, great, we can work on those because they were all about the team, not about him. And that's when I said, well, what's your contribution? to the problem. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're the leader of the team. If your team's playing in fear, what, what, yeah. what's your contribution? And he couldn't come up with an answer. He's a hall of fame coach. So I said, I'm going to come back and ask you tomorrow. Yeah. But I brought members of the team with me because I knew he wouldn't be able to come up with it. So I'll give you just two examples. And this is, you see how it plays out. I said, coach, what does the team think when you start to pace the sideline? He says, they love it. They think I'm engaged and active. I said, all right, Kelly, come on in. Coach, when you start to pace, we think you don't trust us and you make us anxious and nervous. Wow. I said, Coach, why do they look over at you after an athlete when they make a mistake on the court? He said, well, That's easy. He said, They're looking for me to give them a correction, and I always give them one. I said, All right, come on in, Kelsey. Coach, when the reason we look over at you after we make a mistake is we're looking to see if you're going to pull us from the game. And I say, coach, you're always talking about being mindful and present. And the minute they make a mistake, they're already worried about the future. 
They go, coach is going to pull me in front of 8,000 fans and my family. And then if he doesn't pull them and the whistle doesn't blow or the horn, they're thinking if I make one more mistake, I'm definitely done. So when they should be communicating with their teammates, thinking about what they need to do better, they're already worried. Mm. So I asked him to sit down and quit pacing. I said, your team hates it. He did. He had a different reason for why it happened, but he quit pacing and (laughs) he let his team work through mistakes. I said, as long as they don't break team chemistry, I said, you've got a setter and Kelly Hunter, you trust and let them work it out. And he kept doing, and he did that. And we got all the way to the end of the year and we get to play in the national championship. And I told the setter, Kelly Hunter, sometimes under stress, human beings revert back to old behaviors. I said, if coach does anything that causes stress or feels like you don't trust, he doesn't trust you in a game. Can you say something to him? She said, I can do it. Okay. Creating that space yes. that we talked about earlier. And he, I asked him, I said, how do you feel about Kelly? If she was to see a behavior that you had during the game and she felt that was making the team anxious, could she say something to you? And he said, absolutely. Well, in the match, he got up to talk to the ref after there was a bad call. And um, he started to pace a little bit. And she walked over, said something, he sat down never gets up again. We sweep Texas for the national title, a team we haven't been able to beat in years. Get back to the hotel. He goes, I don't even feel like I coach doc. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, I sit the whole time, a few other things, you know, I let assistants talk more. And I said, well, did you prepare them well? Yeah. I said, did you make adjustments after set two? Yeah. I said, did your team play fearless when it mattered the most? And he said, yep. I said, it sounds like you coached. He said, I sure did. And for a long time, I didn't know what Kelly said to him. And then I was told that she said, walked over and said, sit down, coach, we got this. But he was on a podcast with Kerry Pettit, the original coach at Nebraska before him, coach Terry Pettit. And he said to Pettit that coach, that Kelly walked over and said, sit your ass down, coach, we got this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I say 20 year old athlete, 57 year old hall of fame coach. If there's not a better example of ultimate trust, the relationship they built, for her to be able to say what she needed from him in that moment, the way she said it, and for him to respond in the inappropriate matter. That takes a lot of building, that takes a lot of work, takes him changing, admitting that he's a contribution to the problem. It took her building a relationship with him as a young person to have the courage to say, coach, I'm gonna tell you what I think we need because I'm doing what's best for our team. And that's a long-winded story, but it's one of my favorite ones that talk about ultimate trust and one I think people could relate to um, in the sports world and how it played out for a team for them to be able to overcome their demons, beat Texas and win a national title. I mean, the ultimate goal for, for that team. And I, I love the, the parallels here um, to, to my understanding of leadership. I always encourage my students again and again. Uh, we, we talk a lot about trust. It's, it's imperative to mm-hmm. the topic, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, the question is, are you trustworthy? Oh, yeah, I'm trustworthy. I, I love my people. I you know, I'm reliable, I do this, I do that, the other thing, and so therefore I am trustworthy. Mm-hmm. I said, well, how do you know you are being perceived as trustworthy? How do you know your team feels that you're trustworthy? And sometimes there's a big disconnect there. Have you asked, what is your accountability? Not just to say, well, this is my perception of being trustworthy, so I'm going to do these behaviors, um, you know, uh, pace on the sidelines because that's what coaches are supposed to do. Um, 
lead a meeting without a lot of um, interaction because that's what leaders are supposed to do. And what it really is doing inadvertently is undermining that trust. So how do, how do we as leaders, I'm going to go on the assumption that we are all, we all feel like we're trustworthy leaders. How do we find out if we really are? How do we know? It's a big challenge because in, a, in an unequal relationship, how often does the person you lead have the courage to tell you that you're not trustworthy? Yeah. So it has to be about building an appropriate relationship. It's all about the relationships and then having certain behaviors that create that. So a couple others that I have, one is consistency is one of my um, elite leader ingredients. Coach Kirsten Bernthal Booth at Creighton. Nobody better at building trust on a team than I've ever been around. And part of the reason is that she's great with a healthy mixture of love and accountability that I told you about. But another thing she's really great at is being consistent. And what I mean by that is, of course, we're all human. We all have our ups and downs. But you can't be happy coach or happy boss one day and then jerk boss humiliating somebody in front of the team the next day and where people never know what they're going to get and they're walking mm -hmm. on eggshells. So if you're consistent in your behaviors or even consistent in your consequences, meaning, well, I said this is what's going to happen if you're not on time and you give a consequence to maybe somebody lower down on the totem pole on your team, but one of your stars is late and you ignore it. Ooh. You want to talk about breaking trust on a team. Yeah. Set a, set a tone of what's going to happen if somebody doesn't follow that behavior. And then don't be consistent about how you dole out the consequence. All that work you've done to build trust will unravel. And so, but that consistent coach in behaviors and in consequence it already starts to drive trust because we know what to expect. They're yeah. very consistent in who they said they're going to be. They, they do what they say. And then you combine that with understanding and your awareness of I contribute to every problem on my team and everything good on my team I usually contribute to. And you start going down the list and go, how do I build a great team? I build relationships. I build trust. You know, I'm consistent. You know, I understand my role of anything that could go wrong and so forth, you know. And next thing you know, the outcome is trust. You don't even have to ask. But if you don't build what I call psychological safety. Yeah. Right? And that is, the def definition of that is feeling safe and being willing to be vulnerable in front of your team. Right? Well, that takes a lot of work. Everybody has a different backstory. Everyone comes from different places. There's not an, always an equal relationship. And if you want to get to that psychological safety, the leaders on that team, starting with the coach, starting with the boss or the CEO, the managers, and all the way down, if they don't model that behavior and create that safe space, create a, what I call a comfort space for you to let down your guard, mm. then you'll never let down your guard. Yeah. And imagine in that scenario with Coach Cook, if Kelly says, there's not a chance I'm going to tell him. If he starts to pace, I'm not going to say anything because he'll, he'll rip my head off in front of everyone yeah. and I'll feel terrible. I'm not saying a word. Then when the behavior happens, we don't help it. They built the trust. He accepted it and she knew that if he, she said something, she wasn't going to be humiliated in front of him and he would follow through. That takes a lot of back work to be able to have that final, especially in an unequal relationship like we're talking, yeah. athlete, coach. You know, uh, worker and boss. Power differential, you know, for sure. Manager and CEO. I mean, there's, unless you're the final person, you know, and even you usually answer to a board. Yeah. Everybody 
is in a leadership role or a follower role. And most people are in both. Even the CEO of a company follows the board, so to speak, right? Or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you've got to understand that dynamic and be able to work on it and be able to shift based on whether you're the leader or the follower and what your role is Mm -hmm. to help a team get to ultimate trust. It's not just the leader's responsibility. It's the team itself. They have to do their job. Right. And it gets really fun when that happens, but it's simplicity. You've got to build deep enough relationships and build that psychological safety that you're willing to share what you're thinking and feeling because you know the person that you're telling it to isn't going to humiliate you or embarrass you or shun you or because you told them the yeah, truth, punish you. Punish you. Yeah. If that happens, now you've broken. Now the next person is never going to say anything right. to the boss. So it takes a lot of work to get to psychological safety. And the only way to get to ultimate trust is to create a safe space within your team. Wow. There's a word that just is flashing neon in my head, and that's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Traditional leadership says leaders are not vulnerable. High achievers um, are, are uh, hesitant, you know, just struggle with this idea of vulnerability. I, I will, you know, always be the best in everything. Um, but you've dropped that word a couple times as you were talking. And you have a section in the book about vulnerability. It's a topic that is a big part of my curriculum. What about vulnerability is important to this this psychological safety and this trust that ultimately results in high performance? Well, one is there's no psychological safety and no trust if you're not willing to get vulnerable. Now, sometimes you're kind of going in sync, meaning, mm-hmm. well, I've got to take a risk to be a little bit vulnerable, even though I may not fully trust in this moment, depending on my backstory oh, so and my life, right? <laughs> but there's different levels of vulnerability, right? Some okay. can, and we all know people that within 10 minutes, they've told you way more than you want to know about them, right? <laughs> the oversharers. And then yes. there's a lot of people who it takes a long time because they've had a lot of people break trust in their life Mm -hmm. in a terrible way and they're guarded and it's hard to let their guard down. So it's not going to happen equally, but what's cool about vulnerability. And, you know, we talked about Brené Brown. She's the guru. Her Ted talk, the power of vulnerability is the third most watched Ted talk in history, over 50 million views. Yes. Now she's all over the place, but she's a superstar with vulnerability and trust, Mm -hmm. right? Both those. She has a, a talk on her website called the anatomy of trust, which is just awesome as well. Um, is how she defines what trust looks like. She breaks it down for people. Yeah. But vulnerability is so important because, and she, this is more her, I mean, I'm stealing from her, but <laughs> what I love about it is, is if someone's, nobody wants to be, well, most people don't want to be vulnerable. It's hard, it's uncomfortable, makes you anxious. Yeah, you know? it's so scary. It's so, just- <laughs> right, like anything else, if we can get to the why, Why is it important to train mindfulness? Why is it important to be vulnerable? The reason why it's important is a couple of things. One is you can't get to trust on a team without it. But more importantly, what really hits home with leaders is that, as Brené says, that as human beings, we're pretty quick to numb our emotions that we don't want to feel. We numb our emotions. We numb it with all kinds of vices, right? We know all the vices, right? Drinking and taking pills and eating and, um, you know, spending money. There's all kinds of things we do when we don't want to feel something to numb it. But as she says, is if you, you can't selectively numb the bad emotions and say, I don't want to feel any of those. 
without numbing joy and happiness and gratitude and all the good emotions. So the why is you can't selectively numb emotions. So if you're not willing to be vulnerable, I don't want to feel any of that then you're going to numb all the good stuff over time. And when you think about why people get in a lot of trouble in this world with addiction or whatever vices people tend to have as humans, it's we start off by numbing things that are very painful to us. I've had a bad day, a painful divorce or a breakup or disappointed in that I didn't get the promotion. And I go have a few drinks to not feel what I'm feeling. And before you know it, you're numbing a lot of emotions. But then we start to numb all the good feelings, too, that Mm. we have. And so that's why even more important, I would say, is just from a healthy life standpoint, even if you're not on a team, if you want to have a healthy life, you've got to be willing to learn how to not numb everything that feels so painful. And that requires you to live in it and be vulnerable and then share with people in your world, I'm not having a good day and here's why. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, you know. I had to lay someone off today. That was a bad day for me. I'm, I just got laid off. Uh, you know, I got some really bad news health-wise or my kid's really struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, like to be able to share that with your team as a leader is very powerful. Now, as a leader, we may not be able to share exactly what the team can share with each other. If you're a 50-year-old coach, you know, you might want to not tell your 20-year-old team about the painful divorce you're going through. Maybe too much, but it may right. be okay to say, you know, Whatever, you know, I, I got a parent that's very sick. I've had to put them in a nursing home because the other one died. Or, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with, you know, I struggled with this when I was your age as an athlete. And I had a very hard time bouncing back from mistakes. Or when I didn't get the starting job, I sulked for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, like to be able to be vulnerable or sometimes for a leader, the vulnerability comes from just being able to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers right now. I don't know that answer. That's a tough one. But I'm going to go, I'm going to go find it out. Right. Or I actually don't know either. I don't know how this is going to play out. We're going to live in this space together, but I can't promise you that I know the ending. That's vulnerable because Mm. instead of going, you're always acting like you got the answers, but when you really don't, and it's okay to let your team understand, we're going to go through a stress point right now, you know, and that can be vulnerability in a leader. And give, give other people the opportunity to rise to the occasion, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, I find, you know, through my, my leadership journey, my personal uh, development journey, and, and it's been years and it's been a steeply uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> but those times when I gave up this, this sense of, I have to be perfect, I have to be perfect. Um, and, and just said, I'm, not and here's what I'm struggling with, and as you said, not not the gory details, mm-hmm. but a basic truth that other people are so grateful mm-hmm. that a for the trust and b for allowing them the open door to do what they do well mm-hmm. to fill in this space where I can't perform well, mm-hmm. you know, um, but they're going to step in and do what they do well and will still have high performance as a team, but without vulnerability, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You have to ask for what you need. Even as a leader, you have to inform your team, um, what you don't know. And then all let's find out together Mm -hmm. or I'll find out and I'll get back to you to develop that trust. I'm new as a leader on this team. Yeah. I didn't handle that situation the way I had hoped to but I'm going to handle it better next time. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I wish I had handled that better, but I'm, I'm learning too. Yeah. And yes, 
You're, you guys are completely right. I kind of blew that. It's okay to tell that to be seen and to be able to say that. It doesn't make them look at you and go, oh, wow, weak leader. It goes, yeah. wow, they're human. Mm-hmm. They admit to their mistakes. They said they're going to help find the solution, right? You can't just walk in and go, you know, we're all going to die, right? Like there yeah. has to be a plan in place. Like even if I'm not sure, we are going to find a solution here. Yeah. But it requires a little vulnerability that I don't have all the answers. Ooh. I did make a mistake there. Yeah. But it gets to that heart of perfectionism, which most really high achieving people have an element, if not a lot of perfectionism. But I always say we got to learn to manage the cost of perfectionism because the cost of perfectionism lead to joylessness, to burnout, um, and to being emotionally distant from people. Like, yeah. But if you don't learn how to manage the cost of perfectionism, you can't take, care, can't take advantage of the benefits of perfectionism. It's a big struggle with high performers I'm around this need to be perfect. And if I'm not, the world is crumbling around me when it's not, it's not, not. you just have to figure out how to be good enough and be consistent over a period of time. And the rest works itself out, but it's, it's, it's a process that people have to get to, but who's going to get there. If you can't ever tell anyone anything less, I need everyone to see me as perfect. Now you're Mm -hmm. drowning yeah. And now you don't have other people help you with the solution because mm-hmm. you don't want anyone to see you as weak when it's not weak. It's right. it's human. Right. And to be seen in a healthy human way leads to this chance to being a great leader. Yeah. Without it, it doesn't mean your company or your team won't do well. There's a lot of factors that have teams perform well. But if you want to be a team that maxes out and is elite and that has people rarely leave due to work work, you know, to burn out Mm. and would prefer to stay here. You better be a leader that is able to show appropriate vulnerability as a leader and build those relationships. So there is a psychologically safe place to get to that ultimately gets to ultimate trust within a team. And if you have ultimate trust on a team, you got to just look at the stats, the number of people who quit way down, the the amount of money that people make goes way up. The, 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 the number of sick days go way down because when you're on a trusting team, you kind of want to be there. And more importantly, yeah. you don't want to let anyone down on your team. Right. Your engagement, your investment, your yes. personal investment in the team involvement. So, mm-hmm. yes, it's so, is it counterintuitive? Is that the word? Maybe uh, counterconditioned, where uh, vulnerability is powerful if it's not over done, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but, but if it's used well, as with any of our leadership skills, um, and I frequently ask uh, people that I coach or that I teach to reframe this idea of, of what being vulnerable is Mm -hmm. from, um, I'm, I'm disappointing my team. I'm disappointing myself by admitting to this weakness to, you know, first of all, that's between you and yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Figure that out. But let's reframe that and look at at the other side of that coin and say that by admitting this vulnerability, I'm opening the door to opportunity to people around me to show what they can do, mm-hmm. to to step in to a role. It's empowering as well. And so that leads me to a topic that just absolutely enthralled me with your uh, uh, presentation the other week. And that is the power of self-talk. So talk to us about, um, 
about self-talk and um, what are common uh, phrases and words, common ways that we use self-talk and what are more productive ways mm -hmm. that we might use it in a leadership role? Mm -hmm. Well, self-talk is a mental skill. It's one of what I call my building blocks of an elite mindset. There's goal setting, self-talk, arousal, control, mindfulness, and visualization, imagery, um, you know, mental training. All those kind of things lead to what I call training your mindset so you're, so you're confident and you're calm and focused. But um, self-talk, by far, is the number one thing that high performers struggle with especially females, but males do too. It's not wow. even close. One thing is, as most people don't know, is we have about 50,000 thoughts a day. That's crazy in the research. But when they study the average person, three to one, negative to positive, we have way more negative thoughts than positive. Mm, you can surprise. learn to flip the script by training your mind with self-talk statements and being aware that my self-talk's hurting me right now. You want to know the number one phrase that high performers say to themselves when do. they feel down? It's not even close. I suck. Oh. Yeah. I'm no good. I don't belong here. When are they going to, you know, then it gets into all kinds of things, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not believable. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. And it's amazing how quickly our brains, when we're high performers and perfectionists, go to very negative self-statements. And it can be crippling and it's exhausting. Crippling, yeah. It's crippling and exhausting and it's hard to perform well. I always talk awareness and strategy. Awareness that my self-talk right now is hurting me. Strategy to replace it. Most people aren't even aware. Like they don't even know until they really are asked about it. Like, wow, I really do say a lot of bad things to myself. Yeah. So one very simple strategy that I love a couple athletes and high performers have shared with me is... Learn to talk to yourself like you would a good friend. If you wouldn't say it to a good friend or a family member, why would you say it to yourself? Right. Right. Why would you say to yourself when you're struggling in a drill in sport, I'm suck, I'm no good, I'm terrible. So if your teammate was struggling in that same drill, I've said to an athlete, is that what you would say to her? You suck, you're no good. She goes, no, I would never say that to a teammate. My teammate would say, hey, you got this next one or hey, hold your arms a little tighter. So I said, so your teammate gets a correction and positive words and you just cripple yourself. And you know, and athletes will say to me, when I learned to talk to myself, like I would talk to a teammate or a good friend, it changed everything. Mm. And I've had that. So true. And so that's a big foundation for me is being aware of what you say to yourself and does it help you or hurt you? If it hurts you, let's replace it. You can only replace it with either positive mantras, you know, or motivational words or performance words. And I talk about them all in here, but a lot of times we just have to have a power statement. You know, I'm good enough. I'll get through this. I can do it. Sometimes it's honestly as simple as I can versus I can't. And I always tell people that I love it when they use the word yet. High performing females and males say things like, I will never figure it out. It's too hard. And instead of saying, I'll never figure it out, say, I haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. Yet yeah. implies two things to me, right? It implies one, I will figure it out. I just haven't figured it out yet. And I'm also willing to ask for help. So if I can't figure it out, I'll figure it out by getting experts to help me. But I always talk about why that's so important because we talk about grit a lot in my world. A gritty person, a gritty performer bounces back. They handle adversity well. They grow through failure. And I always say that in order to be gritty, you have to have hope. But it has to be realistic hope. And realistic so, hope. So hope There's in the difference. grit world yeah. to me means 
because of my preparation, because first you got to put in the work and prepare. If you're falling a little short or struggling, no, I put in the work. It's going to turn around because of my preparation. And because I have a positive mindset, I will figure this out. Right. Mm -hmm. And because if I'm on a team, this is really important. I know my teammates and coaches believe in me that I huge truly believe what's about to happen is going to be great. Even if what just happened wasn't so great Uh in sport, I just made a terrible error. Right. I've got this next one. Right. And I said something, you know, that I wish I hadn't said in that meeting. You know, I'm going to be better next time. I know what I'm going to say next time. Like you have to believe that what's about to happen is going to be great in the grit world. If you want to be gritty and bounce back, even if what just happened wasn't so great, but it requires the right preparation, the right mindset, which is self-talk a lot of times. And it requires knowing your teammates and coaches have your back. And so you've got to come up with phrases that work for you. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can't tell themselves, I'm great. I'm a hard worker. They go, that's bragging, but they can't tell themselves. I put in the work, you know, I deserve this. You know, I belong here. I will figure this out. You know, I am good enough. And so you've got to figure out, do you use positive words or some people use motivational words? I can't wait to show my boss, you know, that they overlooked me last time. I can't (laughs) wait to show them how well, how much I put in the work here. Motivational words, like you're nervous to give your presentation. Now you're doubting yourself and, oh my gosh, should I do enough work? You know, you know, I can't wait to show them. what I'm about to present. That's a positive mantra, a motivational word that gets you fired up or a statement. And then, then performance words are more related to the sport. But even I've had a CEO come up with their words, meaning he told me in, in the, in the big, big meeting, sometimes I lose my focus. I interrupt and, or I get really wound up with says, says something I don't like. So this CEO reminds himself to be calm, Mm -hmm. to be mindful, to breathe, you know, and to be patient. And he'll repeat those words to himself a lot of times in a meeting to go, I just need to be calm. So that he says a lot of times I will break trust in this meeting because I, I, I kind of get mad out of the blue and then I say something and I hurt someone's feelings. I've got to be able to be patient in those moments. I get it. And so even the high performing business people will come up with two or three things that we come up with to go, what are your keys to having a successful meeting? This is the biggest meeting year year. What gets in your way? Well, what gets in my way is when I lose my calm, when I lose my focus and I start getting on my iPad and people can see that I'm typing or something, or if I, you know, get angry. So if I can just remind myself, all I got to do is be calm and focused and patient in this meeting. And if I do those three things, this meeting is going to go really well. And sometimes we got to remind ourselves because we get triggered and we're like, my initial response would be to lay into that person for saying something that was, you know, out of, you know, out of context, or I'm going to let them finish and, and give their, their, their opinion, even if I disagree. <laughs> oh, that one's tough. <laughs> so it's tough, right? But yeah. Then, but if they can have enough awareness to go, when I interrupt, all I do is break trust with that person. And then every, yeah. no one else wants to give their opinion. So you got to have this awareness of what's my contribution to this. Yeah. But again, your self-talk words can be very powerful in here they before really a presentation, before a competition, during it, if I'm feeling like it's not quite going right, like I can do this, I've got this. Like it depends on you, but you got to work it out. But self-talk, the reason why self-talk is so important, and I'll leave you with this, is that when we train my four C's in elite mindset, one of the ingredients is confidence, right? I mean, we know what that word means, but you have to earn the right to be confident. Well, my number one ingredient of confidence is preparation and hard work. Like without putting in the work on all the building, you know, all the legs of an elite mindset or, you know, uh, of the chair, the physical leg, the technical, tactical, and mental leg. You got to work on all those if you want to be great. 
But the number two ingredient, let's suppose you are the hardest worker on your team. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it. So you're, I say you're halfway home to confidence. But the minute you make a mistake, I suck. I'm no good. Mm -hmm. Coach should just pull me. I'll never, I don't deserve this promotion. Right? What did he see in me or she, right? Like all of a sudden our confidence tanks. So if you want to be confident and it, you need to be confident if you want to have an elite mindset, you've got to put in the work. That's your first ingredient. Your second ingredient is self-talk. You've got to get better at it. You have to be aware. I'm starting to tell my things really bad stuff about myself. I'm no good. Well, when you tell yourself you're no good and you got 10 seconds to be ready for the next play or the next comment to your boss, like you got to be able to stay positive third ingredient I'll leave you with this is I believe that if you're on a great team that your teammates and coaches if they know what you need they can help you move on to the next moment they can help yes. you or hurt your confidence yep. there's a few other ingredients I won't bore you with right now but if you put in the work and you know how to talk to yourself when you start to get stressed and if you're on a team I say even the best self-talker on a team at some point your brain's going to let you down in the course of the year. But if your teammates know the signs of when you're getting in your own head and stressed, yeah, that right in those moments when I don't make eye contact with you and I'm looking really stressed, I need you to tell me, hey, you're great. Or give me a high five or squeeze my hand. Like if you know what you need, you're gonna be able to share it with your team and coaches and then you gotta let them in when you're stressed. But if you do, the great teams I'm around, they help each other move on to the next moment. Because the stress is gonna hit and we're all gonna make mistakes. How do I respond to that mistake is the key to being going from really, really good to elite or to maxing out. If I can respond better than the team across from us, because we're all going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Almost every sport, when I talk sport, is a game of failure. Who can handle failure the best? Who can grow the most through adversity? If you can learn those things, you have a competitive advantage. Some of that's rooted in self-talk. Some of that is rooted in my teammates and coaches they know what I need when I'm stressed and I know they believe yeah. in me so that yeah. yes, I screwed up there, but I, they need me to get a hit right now. I believe I'm going to get a hit versus, oh my gosh, coach is going to pull me if I make one more mistake or my teammates, I can tell they're mad at me. They don't look at me. They don't talk to me. Well, if your teammates need to know you need eye contact when you make a mistake, that reassures me that you're in it with me. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun to work with teams on those ingredients because I call those the hidden ingredients of confidence. And if you can be confident in sport or life, I say you, you can be fearless. You might have nerves before yes. a competition or presenting to the, the board. But if you know you put in the work and you know how to talk to yourself, you know, et cetera, you know, there's no fear. It's only when the worry and doubt creep in that I didn't put in the work or I'm really hard on myself or I don't think my team and coaches believe in me or my boss that we start to get fearful. And when we get fearful, now we're in trouble. But nerves now are we're fine. In trouble, yeah. Nerves we can deal with. We got a hundred strategies to deal with nerves when we're kind of getting way more anxious than we want to be. It's the fear that gets us in trouble. But training confidence, and I believe we can train confidence like any physical skill, yeah. allows you to have a chance of being fearless when it matters under pressure. Doesn't mean you always get to win, uh -huh. right? But it, <laughs> Darn but, it. <laughs> but, it but it changes the odds in your favor. What an interesting distinction mm -hmm. between nervousness and fear. I think most of us use that synonymously, but you're saying, no, there's a difference. And there can be a difference. Okay. Talk if you haven't put in the work, oh, right? You've cheated the process. You haven't done everything. You didn't prepare as well for that presentation as you should have. You went to the bar last night. You should have reviewed it a couple <laughs> more times. Whatever it is, like, you know, you didn't put in the work. Right. And now if it's starting to struggle a little bit, 
now the fear creeps in. Like I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I don't have all the answers because I didn't do the work versus, you know what? I made a mistake there. He asked me a question on that. I've rallied. I, I've got the answer for them. Or so there's a difference between pressure can be a privilege. Pressure can turn into fear and destroy you. The only way it becomes a privilege is when you put in the work and you have the right positive mindset. And if you're on a team, your team and coaches believe in you. Um, and a few other ingredients. And now, now I get a chance to be truly, that pressure turns into privilege. I'm excited. Like those nerves are awesome. I always tell athletes that a lot of you, when your career's over, you'll miss this feeling forever of being alive, that nerves that before a competition. Mm. And a lot of people go into coaching because they are chasing that feeling of what it felt like to be in the locker room or to pursue yeah. a goal with the team. Those nerves, if they're a privilege, you love them. It's only when they consume you because you don't believe that you're good enough. You don't believe you've put in the work. You don't, you don't have no trust that when you make a mistake, the coach isn't going to humiliate you in front of the team or your team's going to say, get her out of here. Like that's when the fear creeps in. Now I make one mistake and I'm afraid versus no, I got this. Mm. I put in the work. I know what to do here. This next ball I'm going to crush, but you have to have some ingredients that allow you to feel like the pressure is a privilege. Yeah. And confidence is the key ingredient points to the the incredible importance and this is something that is going to come up again and again and again in this podcast uh, of of building that trust of being open and honest with each other um, when uh, so that someone who is uh, filling their heads with their own negative self-talk turns to their teammate and says you know I need help here and that teammate says, you got this. I've seen you train. I've seen you mm -hmm. uh, perform before. That, um, that, the, per that the person doing the self-talk can, can trust the input from the team. So you've got to have that trust, that consistency, that safe space to, um, to, to speak your truths and say, yeah, you know, that, that really sucked. You do know better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you were out partying all last night when you should have been getting a good night's sleep and you know, let's try harder next time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so important to be able to trust the feedback that you get from your teams. It's, um, a, a personal anecdote on that was, um, I was in, uh, my, my master's degree program, the, the one I direct now. And, um, I, I have had imposter syndrome my whole life. <laughs> like I look around going, okay, how the heck did this happen? Um, but the self-defeating, the defeating, the defeating, the defeating talk. And I confided in one of my classmates and, you know, she told me, the opposite. She said, no, Beth, you know, whatever, you know, you are smart enough. You are good enough. You are determined enough. And some other classmates came in and, and, you know, started chiming in. Mm -hmm. I believed them. We had that kind of trust. We, I felt like we were in the trenches together. Like if I really was terrible, they'd have told me so that when they did rally and provide me what I would call this evidence to counter the negative self-talk, I could weigh both and go, wait a minute, there's a lot more evidence to show that I can be successful mm -hmm. than there is that I will fail at this. So I'm going to go with what the evidence shows. But there has to be trust at the very core of that mm -hmm. and the vulnerability to say, I'm freaking out here, people. Mm -hmm. 
what do you got for me? There has to be that vulnerability. You have to set, let them know. Wow. That myself, but, but again, what you just said, right? What I told you, when you're stressed, if you're on a great team, your teammates, in this case, your, your fellow students, could either have helped your confidence or hurt your confidence. Oh, yeah. Moment. They could have crushed your confidence in they that moment, too. They could have crushed me. Right? They, could, <laughs> they could say, you know, no, yeah. you're no good. You're the worst. Or you ask a question and nobody says anything to you. I've asked you guys for some feedback. You've given me nothing. Mm. Oh, my gosh, you must really think I am bad. You know, they all yeah. look down when you say, well, tell me the truth. You know, do I have what it takes to be successful? And everyone looks down. <laughs> no, but like, right now you're thinking, right. Or you ask the question in the heat of battle and maybe they didn't hear you. Yeah. And a lot of times they're in their own head themselves. Now in this situation, not, but sometimes someone else is in their own head and you're like, they're mad at me. And they're not even thinking about you, but you got to be able to check it out with them. Like, Hey, got to be able to check it and out. And you got to let yeah. them know like, Hey, my self-talk is really bad. Like, I really say some terrible things to myself when I'm stressed. You guys might not know that about me because you always think I'm the confident one, but when something doesn't go my way, I really beat myself up and yeah. I can't get out of my head. And I need you because you're on my team. When you see me get like that, I need this from you. Because not all, a lot of times I can get out of my head. And I'll give you a quick, funny example. On a team, one of the athletes said, I'm really good at getting out of my own head most of the time. You can tell because I smile and make eye contact. If you see that I don't, I need you to call me Taylor Swift. <laughs> and the whole team broke okay. out laughing. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's hear her out. Why? She says, because I have a phrase that I use to a positive phrase that I use. She says, let's shake it off. She says, that's one of Taylor Swift's most popular songs. Okay. So she says, Funny. if I'm not shaking it off, because I usually tell myself to shake it off, if I'm stuck... If one of you call me Taylor Swift, it will get me out of my own head and remind me to shake it off. <laughs> and so once they got done laughing, I said, your job, right? We're trying to move on to the next play better than everyone else. And if one person is stressed on the court, the whole team is stressed. So your only job is to be aware of what it's like when she's stressed. Not making eye contact and smiling means I'm stuck in my head when I make that mistake. I didn't move on. One of you guys need to rally. Hey, Taylor Swift, whatever you want to call her. You might think that's funny. Right. But it's a really easy cue for her to reset. It works for right. her most of the time. But when her brain fails her, she's got a teammate who can get her out of her head. Right. You can either help her confidence in that moment yeah. or hurt her confidence. Yeah. And you saw it play out, which I even loved to be able to say during your master's while you were working on things and you had self-doc, self-doubt, and you're starting to beat yourself up. You were vulnerable enough to tell a teammate. And then you got the rest of the team to rally around and help you with perspective. Yes. Go, yes, of course I've earned the right to be confident here. Yeah. I have put in the work. I am good enough. You couldn't do it for yourself in that moment. You acknowledged it, said, I'm not getting out of my own head. My head is messing with me right now. Mm. All of our heads mess with us sometimes. Yeah. And it leads to imposter syndrome that you talked about, which is a whole other topic. Whole but, other topic but we'll that do another topic, time. Right, is all about usually self talk is at the root of that. I'm not yeah. good enough. When are people going to figure out how I'm a fraud here? When are they going to figure out I don't know what I'm talking about? Like, <laughs> how did I get here? Like, when are people going to figure out I have no business being in this spot? Right? Yeah. And that's imposter syndrome because there's a reason why you're in that spot. Yeah. And so self-talk's at the root of that and vulnerability's at the root sometimes of getting out of your own head if you can't do it yourself. Wow. Oh my gosh. I would love to have this conversation for days, um, but we are, we're out of time. Um, so 
I love what we talked about here, the, the power of vulnerability, um, trust, um, and the uh, safety that we can create as a team member and in particular as a leader. We have to create that for ourselves and for our teams to get the maximum performance from self and others. And if you want some more detail, some uh, amazing insights, go out and get Dr. Larry Widman's book, Max Out Mindset. It's a fabulous read and uh, worth every bit of time and energy you spend involved in it. So I'd like to wrap up this conversation by turning it over to you and saying, what do you want the loving leadership community to know? What's going on in your world? What should we know about? How can we find you? How can we uh, enlist your uh, services, your coaching, um, et cetera? Yeah. So easiest way to find us is at maxoutmindset.com. Okay. That's really easy. Um, I hang out on Twitter, doc underscore elite mind. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but I don't really know how to use them very well. So <laughs> I actually have someone else do the Instagram and stuff. I just, Twitter's enough for me. So that's where I post everything I know about teams and athletes and sometimes cool things they do. It's, um, there's only positive stuff I post and that's just the way it is. That's what I believe. Um, and so you can find me there. Um, obviously, um, on Twitter, you can find us at our website. But really, you know, I have a partner in Scott Papik who um, kind of runs everything for us. He's taking a Power of Positive Leadership course right now. He does some stuff with some of our parents. Scott and I wrote a book this year called Max Out Mindset for Parents. Max Out Mindset for Parents. Yeah. Awesome. And it's just a companion book and workbook that goes with my other three books, the Max Out Mindset book. And then I wrote a book called Max Out Mindset for Volleyball and Max Out Mindset for Softball this year. The softball book, and I just need to share this. The reason I wrote the softball book, I haven't been that involved in the softball world. Volleyball has been my big space and some other sports until recently. But I have to give a shout out to the Play for Page 33 Foundation. And here's why. Because Barb and Jason Reisner are parents. Most of us can relate to that. I'm a parent, you know. Yeah. And their daughter went to Scott Catholic um, last year and she was a softball player there and she ended up taking her life. Oh. And just a, a, a terrible situation, oh. but they've turned it into a relative positive. They created a foundation that their whole mission is to make sure that no one has to go through what they go through and that nobody has to go through the daughter Paige went through. Paige was the light of most people's life. It's just, they didn't know she was, their parents knew she was struggling and they were getting her help, but she ultimately took her life. And their mission is to help students and student athletes know they're not alone, mm. to provide this awareness, right, of mental health and that it's okay to ask for help and that you're never alone. And they have a, and so their foundation is really cool. So I've, my book about the softball was written in honor of their, their daughter, a page uh, dedicated it to her and to them. And they wrote the forward to my book, but they are giving back where a lot, I don't know if I could do it as a parent, honestly, if my, I don't know if I, if I would just turn inward for a long time, mm. they've turned outward to help others and they are a cool family that are just trying to help other people and try to survive themselves in, you know, what ultimately is probably the worst thing that can happen to a parent. Absolutely. It's to lose their child for whatever reason. And so, um, if you want to learn, learn more about them, I mean, they're all about helping others and they're giving back to other people and they got a cool golf tournament coming up. And so anyway, but that's kind of what our job at Max Out Mindset is to provide world-class elite mindset training 
we work with teams. We work with about 50 or 60 athletic teams from high school all the way up to Division One. work with some professional athletes. I've got a professional beach team that Taryn Cloth and Kristen Nuss right now, if things don't change, they're they're the number uh, they'll be in the top two to go to the olympics for uh, for america wow. next year so got a cool gymnast and lexi's ice who just won a gold medal at the world championships trying to make the olympic team and but we have got cool high school teams all over the state and over the country cool college teams all around from any any to division one and we're helping them try to max out through the things we talked about today we do Fantastic. a lot of talks for businesses too trying mm-hmm. to help them understand and or like what i did for the mindfulness retreat just to give an nice overview in an hour or two or 45 minutes, whatever they need on, you know, what are some of the things that we can start to think about to create a healthier environment within our team or ourselves or as a leader um, to max out in sport and life? Although I always say life's more important than sport. Well, yeah, they, they, we do have to prioritize uh, the way we live. So we will have all of the information about how to contact Larry Woodman and get in touch with the Max Out Mindset crew on our show notes. And at this point, I'd like to say thank you so much for tuning in to the Love and Leadership podcast. And and I hope what we've talked about today will inspire you to lead with love, to max out your leadership mindset one love and act at a time. I'm Dr. Beth Merkel, and I can't wait to connect with you again on the next episode of Love and Leadership. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey we call Love and Leadership. Now it's time for you to take action and unleash your true leadership potential. Here are four easy steps you can take today. Number one, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Number two, share. Share the love with your friends, colleagues, and fellow leaders. Number three, connect to our Love and Leadership community by clicking the link below. And finally, take the knowledge and wisdom that you've gained from this podcast and put it into action. The Love and Leadership Podcast is more than just a podcast. It's a movement. Together, let's rewrite the leadership narrative and create a world where love, passion, and purpose thrive. I can't wait to see the incredible impact you'll make as a love and leader. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, lead on with love. A Huda Media Production.